We are looking at uh, the statement on social justice in the gospel, Article 5, which is the article on sin. And again, it just continues with this same uh, approach to trying to set boundaries for Bible words, Bible boundaries, Bible definitions for Bible words. And so if someone's going to accuse you of sin, then they ought to be willing to show you from the Bible how you have sinned or where you have gone astray according to the Bible. So the article says, We affirm that all people are connected to Adam both naturally and federally. Again, you'll recognize that language as uh, being consistent with our, our confession of faith. Therefore, because of original sin, everyone is born under the curse of God's law and all break His commandments through sin. There's no difference in the condition of sinners due to age, ethnicity, or sex. All are depraved in all their faculties and all stand condemned before God's law. All human relationships, systems, and institutions have been affected by sin. So there's the attempt in this part of the document to acknowledge that yes, there is a corporate identity that we all possess because we're all creatures made in God's image and we all have a federal head. We all were represented by Adam when he was placed in the garden by God. And as we teach our children, in Adam's fall, we send all. Romans 5, 12, and 13, I think, make this plain whenever it describes that we have sinned in Adam. In one man, we all sinned. So the corporate identity is something that we do affirm here. One of the accusations or, or complaints or criticisms about this statement is that it's individualistic and that it's too American because it only sees tim, uh, sin in terms of individualism. Well, quite clearly right here, we tried to avoid falling into that trap and we acknowledge the corporate identity. However, we also uh, acknowledge that there is uh, an, um, no difference of a person's sinfulness due to anything that is accidental to him or her. We're all depraved. The denial is that other than previously stated connection to Adam, any person is morally culpable for another person's sin. So, uh, though there is a connection because of our interconnectedness in relationships, and I can talk about my family's sin, my ancestors' sin, and I can understand connectedness there. I am not culpable for the sin of my father. My father must give an account for his sin. I must give an account for my sin. And we might have some complicity. If he doesn't warn me or teach me about sin and righteousness, then he'll bear guilt for that. But he will not stand to give an account before God for my sin nor will I stand to give an account before God for anyone else's sin. Well, this is uh, getting at the, the language and the, the ideas that we are all guilty of sin because we're part of a, a cultural majority that has provided for, if not exploited, actually exploited, 
those who have been faced difficulties and are regarded as minorities today, however that's divided, sexually or able-bodied or ethnically or however. So I'm not responsible for my grandfather's sin. And I would go so far as to say that the, the horrific crimes that were done, or the horrific ways that people were treated in our nation um, against God's law, those, those who, create, who did those horrific sins and crimes in generations past are guilty. They're guilty of that. And the great-grandchildren of those who perpetrated those acts of violence and wickedness are not guilty for their great-grandparents' sin. Uh, do do we, we have a, a connection? Yeah, of course we do. Should we bear some sense of sorrow? Absolutely we should. But to hold me guilty before God for another person's sin is a misreading of the Bible. At least that's our argument. That's why we put the denial in there. The next phrase qualifies it a little bit more. Although families, groups, nations can sin collectively, cultures can be predisposed to particular sins. Subsequent generations share the collective guilt of their ancestors only if they approve and embrace or attempt to justify those sins. So um, is a great-great-great-great-grandson of a slave owner guilty of the sin of owning or selling slaves? No. Well, no, he's not. I had a conversation with a man in Alabama who <clears throat> has married into a family of great wealth, and they traced back, and it is her, I don't know, two or three generations back grandparents that made tons of money, built up a fortune, and largely did it on the, sla the back of slaves. And so he he's said he's had some just existential crises in thinking, what do I do about this? You know, what do I do about this? And, you know, is, would it be appropriate for him to set up a scholarship or do something for uh, m minorities, for blacks? Yeah, that, that might be a great thing for him to do. But he should not bear the guilt of those who have gone before him. And whenever these ideologies come in, particularly critical race theory that's employed in this way, that's where you are if you have that kind of connection whether it's direct or whether you're just living in a country where that has happened and you seem to, you, you fit into the majority oppressive categories that this ideology says you belong to, then you're guilty and you don't get rid of your guilt. One of the reasons I, I think this, I argue, that this whole agenda and movement is a threat to the gospel is that there is no forgiveness. You know, there is no justification. There, there's no way out. The only way that you can begin to relieve the pressure and the guilt is by taking a posture of lament and acquiescence and saying, yeah, you know, uh, in, as I quoted earlier, I'm a racist. I'm going to be a racist till I die. Well, okay. Yeah, I mean, so there's, you know, that's in this schema, well, you've just signaled your virtue. And so we can, we can maybe let you do things. But if you say that's true of yourself, then you're living with guilt. You're living with, uh, without the provision of the 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and such were some of you. you know, no, such, I, that's all I am. That's what I am. And you, to, to take that 
and, and to justify it on the basis of that we are at the same time both righteous and sinful. And Paul's statement that, you know, I'm the chief of sinners, I think is a misapplication of how the gospel works. Because, of course, we're all sinners. And if we're thinking rightly, we would all argue that we have reason to lay claim to the chief of sinners. Because God teaches us more of our sin as we grow and we see that and we hate it. Just like Paul grew in his depth of understanding of his own sin over the course of his life. But that does not at all mean that Paul walked around or calls upon any of us to walk around with low grade guilt. That I'm guilty because I am a sinner in this way. Our, our guilt is forgiven. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's what the gospel does. We turn from sin. We trust Christ. We live in the freedom that comes on the basis of what he has once for all done for us. This approach doesn't allow for that. Why? Because this approach is not coming from the same worldview of the gospel that has come to us from the God who created us and has sent his son to redeem us and provides absolute salvation for us. It, it's, it doesn't exist. So we go on. <coughs> Before God, each person must repent and confess his own or her own sins in order to receive forgiveness. We further deny that one's ethnicity establishes any necessary connection to any particular sin. Well, this one was uh, uh, greatly protested by those who say, no, because you are the majority race, and the majority race is the one that had all the power and has all the power that has subjugated minority races and has sinned against minority races, then you, know, you definitely are um, connected to the sin of slavery, to the sin of racism, because that's just who you are. You were born into this, you've lived this way, you've benefited from this system, and consequently you are complicit and therefore guilty in it. The Gospel, uh, Article 6, is again straightforward. <clears throat> the, the last part of the denial is worth looking at. It says this means that implications and applications of the gospel, such as an ob the obligation to live justly in the world, though legitimate and important in their own right, are not definitional, definitional components of the gospel. Hand in hand with some of these ideologies that have come in is the idea that uh, everything is a gospel issue. It's a gospel issue. Well, we need to be careful in using that language that we don't miscommunicate. Are things connected to the gospel? Absolutely. Racism is connected to the gospel. Uh, misogyny is connected to the gospel. There are any number of sins like that you can say these are gospel issues because the gospel addresses them. But whenever you start kind of importing into the gospel itself these things, then that's where you start, you start doing what Paul warns must not be done in Galatians 1. You start going after another gospel that is not a gospel at all because to add to the gospel is to lose the gospel. Salvation, Article 7. Um, the, the third sentence of the affirmation, in God's eyes there's no difference in spiritual value or worth among those who are in Christ. Further, all who are united to Christ are also united to one another regardless of age, ethnicity, and sex. The, the union with Christ is one of the, one of the areas of biblical teaching that suffers at the hands of this movement because what's the most important thing about a Christian? 
What's the most important part of our identity? We're in Christ. We're in Christ. That trumps everything. So what that means is that as a 62-year-old man, I have more in common with a 10-year-old boy who is a Christian, as I'm a Christian, than I do with another 62-year-old man who went to Texas A&M University and Southwestern Seminary and likes to hunt and fish and lives in Southwest Florida. We've got a lot of things in common, but if he's unconverted, what I have in common with a 12-year-old boy trumps everything else that I have in common with this other guy. And I don't think we believe that much today. I don't think we're thinking in those terms because what that means is if a guy is not the same ethnicity as I am, if a person, if it's a woman, uh, if it's an older person, a younger person, disabled person, it doesn't matter. If we're in Christ, then we're united to one another because we're united to Christ. And what we have in common in Christ is far more valuable than what would otherwise separate us. And yet what we're seeing, and it's not just been part of this movement, but this movement has taken it <clears throat> and used it, is the balkanization of evangelicalism and the balkanization now of what's happening in some of the reformed elements of the evangelical world. So before, you know, I mean, I, we, used to, uh, we used to hold up as examples of what not to do things like surfer church, you know, and cowboy church, and churches built around affinities. You know, well, if you want to reach cowboys, you've got to have cowboys. And so you build a corral out in front of your church. I don't know if y'all have got this here. They're everywhere in Texas. I mean, you drive through these little towns and you see a church with a corral out in front. People ride their horses up, you know, and they, I mean, it's like a barn. And it's just, uh, it's everything's done for cowboys. Well, in California, Hawaii, they've got surfer churches, you know, and uh, they got biker churches. I mean, just built around affinities. Well, now what do we have? Well, now we have black churches and uh, blacks leaving evangelicalism, white evangelicalism as it's called. And, you know, there always have been racial divides that have sinfully existed. But whenever you're intentionally doing it, you're intentionally doing it because you are convinced that what we have in the gospel is not enough to unite us, that's a problem. And there's a friend of mine who's pastored a church in Orlando for years, downtown. Orlando, one of the most multi-ethnic, the most multi-ethnic church I think I've ever seen or been a part of in, uh, in North America. And some of this ideology came in there and some of the leadership there of minority ethnicities began to complain about the church being too white. I mean, they were leaders, elders. And through progressing down that same road, pulled out and went to black church and now are part of the black Hebrew Israelites movement because they found more in common. These were leaders over here. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not saying that's, you know, it doesn't prove everybody will do that. But it, you think, what were they thinking over here that made them worthy of being leaders in a church, reformed church, that had all kind of ethnicities in it and in, in, in leadership positions to go over here because of their ethnic distinctions that would make now then, this more attractive than even the gospel they once professed. The denial of the Article 7, deny that salvation can be received in any other way than Christ. 
Deny that salvation renders any Christian free from all remaining sin or immune from even grievous sin in this life. Further deny that ethnicity excludes anyone from understanding the gospel, nor does anyone's ethnic and cultural heritage mitigate or remove the duty to repent and believe. Again, we're all before God's law, creatures made in His image, held accountable as lawbreakers. It doesn't matter how old, doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter your ethnic background. God regards us equally before His commandments as guilty and in need of redemption. <clears throat> the church, there's a statements in here about uh, guarding against trying to do things by cultural uh, engagement. Heresy, this was an important one in light of what's been said, is being continued to be said about those who have... Uh, participated in the sin of man-stealing and harsh treatment of slaves being heretics. And so this is a carefully thought-out worded statement here. We affirm that heresy is a denial of or departure from a doctrine that is essential to the Christian faith. Uh, we further affirm that heresy often involves the replacement of key essential truths with variant co concepts or the elevation of non-essentials to the status of essentials. Uh, that, those two statements basically come from a definition <clears throat> that Al Mohler gave uh, when he was a thinking or, or, or trying to explain heresy in a popular context. To embrace heresy is to depart from the faith once delivered to the saints and thus to be on a path towards spiritual destruction. Well, that ought to make us very careful as to who we categorize as a heretic because we say if a heretic continues in his heresy, then he sets himself up for eternal damnation. We affirm that the accusation of heresy should be reserved for those departures from Christian truth that destroy the weight-bearing doctrines of redemptive, the redemptive core of Scripture. We affirm that accusations of heresy should be accompanied with clear evidence of such destructive beliefs. And we deny that the charge of heresy can legitimately be brought against every failure to achieve perfect conformity to all that is implied in sincere faith in the gospel. So, for example, I had a conversation this week um, <clears throat> about a, a situation at one of our uh, evangelical academic institutions in which one of the leaders of that institution was claiming that uh, some of the respected Christian leaders in our past who owned slaves were heretics in writing saying they're heretics. And when asked, well, do you believe that they're in heaven? Uh, he said, I don't know. That's for God to judge. I don't know. And so, well, do you believe that heresy is damnable error? Yes. And you believe that they committed damnable error and died in that? Yes. Well, don't you believe that they're in hell? I don't know. That's for God to judge but went on to say, however, I do believe that R.L. Dabney and Thornwell are in hell because of their defense of slavery. Um, this statement, I didn't know that detailed argument of the position, but I knew the argument when we wrote this uh, statement, and it was designed to disallow that type of reasoning. Sexuality and marriage. 
We affirm that God created mankind male and female, that this divinely determined, determined distinction is good, proper, and to be celebrated. Maleness and femaleness are biologically determined at conception and are not subject to change. The curse of sin results in sinful, disordered affections that manifest in some people as same-sex attraction. Salvation grants sanctifying power to renounce such dishonorable affections as sinful and to mortify them by the Spirit. We further affirm that God designs for mar- God's design for marriage is that one woman and one man live in a one-flesh covenantal sexual relationship until separated by death. Those who lack the desire or opportunity for marriage are called to serve God in singleness and chastity. This is a noble, is as noble a calling as marriage. So the consideration here is that. Uh, addressing the homosexual LBGTQ plus uh, concerns and getting at the issue of gay Christianity, gay Christianity. And we'll talk more about this a little bit later and how there are two wings to the gay Christianity movement, at least two wings that I see and that have published and, and advocated certain positions. But th- what do we say to those who find themselves attracted to people of the same sex? Well, you know, that, that's part of the fall. I mean, it's, 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 it's sorrowful, it's heartbreaking, but the reality is sin has affected all of us, and so all of our loves are disordered by sin. And uh, those who are not attracted to same-sex relationships but are attracted to opposite-sex relationships must mortify their temptation to lust in the same way that those who are attracted to same-sex uh, activities. And that seems to be missing in some of the debate today, that if you are same-sex attracted, then that's a part of your identity. And so you identify as a homosexual Christian, or you can identify as a homosexual Christian, and you should not see anything in that identity as being um, worthy of or necessitating uh, mortification. and it's a, a, a failure to appreciate the way that sin has worked and the hope of the gospel in overcoming sin. Does that mean that if a person's converted that he's going to go from being a homosexual to a heterosexual and that there's not going to be any more struggle? No, not necessarily. Just like it doesn't mean that if you've been a profligate heterosexual sleeping around with whoever you could of the opposite sex, as soon as you get converted that you're going to lose all those desires. But they're going to have to be mortified. And God can certainly deliver you immediately. God has done that. But God also works progressively in sanctification with others. Again, I think Rosaria Butterfield is the most helpful person that I've read on this and how she's dealt so honestly with her own experience. She makes a great point that she was converted not out of homosexuality. She was converted out of unbelief. And she came to Christ. And when she came to Christ, that he began to reorder her affections and that it's constant, it's ongoing with her, and she recognizes that. So trying to deal with this issue in a way that uh, acknowledges sin is not just what we do. Sin is uh, inherent in us as well. Sin does not just affect our actions. Sin affects our desires. It was part of the reason for including this article. Look at the denial. We deny that human sexuality is a socially constructed concept which is being advocated. You know, who, who is it that told you you're a man? Who is it that told you you're a woman? Why do you have to, you, you can be whatever you want to be. 
Uh, I was told that Facebook, I forget what, how many, 50, 100 different gender things you can pick on Facebook, is that right? Something like that. So whenever you go and fill out your profile, you know, it's not just are you a man or you a woman, but you got all these different options now, and you can just choose however you want to identify. Why? Because the fact that you think you're a man or you think you're a woman is just what you've been told all your life and the way you've been treated, and you just need to be authentic to yourself, and you need to be liberated, and with that liberation, you can determine how you want to identify, male, female, or something that's gender fluid or uh, something that's not binary at all. We deny that one's sex can be fluid. We reject gay Christian as a legitimate biblical category so that someone would take that as an identity and own it as a part of their Christian identity. We further deny that any kind of partnership or union can properly be called marriage other than one man, one woman, and a lifelong covenant uh, together. We further deny that people should be identified as sexual minorities, which serves as a cultural classification rather than one that honors the image-bearing character of human sexuality as created by God. Sexual minorities. What's being done with that language, which is used now pretty regularly, <clears throat> is to take racial minority um, and uh, the, all the laws of civil rights that were fought for rightly in this land and that were put into place need to be applied over here because they're sexual minorities. And heterosexuals, cisgendered heterosexuals are the majority, so anything that's not that becomes a minority and can get in on the minority status and minority treatment and being part of an oppressed class to try to gain access to uh, better treatment and better uh, opportunities and, and even overthrowing the, uh, the majority that we'll again, talk about in a moment of how that's conceived in the, the critical theory scheme. Complementarianism. This is the issue of role of women and, and the accusations of misogyny and the care to guard against being misogynistic. We affirm that God created mankind, both male and female, with inherent biological and personal distinctions between them, and that these created differences are good, proper, and beautiful though there is no difference between men and women before God's law or as recipients of his saving grace, we affirm that God has designed men and women with distinct traits and to fulfill distinct roles. In other words, God created men to be men, women to be women. And a woman should not be ashamed of anything that uh, she is that is different than being a man. A man should not be ashamed of anything that he is that is different than being a woman. God created male and female. And before his law, we're the same. In grace, we are treated equally, but God has given us distinct roles with distinctive uh, traits as well. These differences are most clearly defined in marriage in the church, but are not irrelevant in other spheres of life. That's an important point. And you may have heard in the debates about complementarianism, language used like, like soft complementarians or broad complementarians versus hard complementarians or narrow complementarians or I think I've got that backwards narrow would be soft and hard would be broad uh, it's, it's a little counterintuitive broad complementarianism says that God designed men and women to be different and that that has creational ramifications so we we tend to think of complementarianism where the rubber hits the, the road is in terms of church and home so husbands should be head of a husband should be the head of his wife. 
churches are to be led, ruled by qualified men and not women. Those are certainly true. But does the fact that God created them male and female have any implications beyond church and home? Or is it okay for women to go on the front lines of combat? I personally think that that's not right, that that is contrary to the design that God has built into creation and making men and women different. There's different bone structures that we have as men and women. Hormones do different things to your body as men and women. Does that mean that you can't find one woman that's stronger than one man that would be more uh, skilled at fighting and combat than one man? No, it doesn't mean that at all. I'm not talking about instances of individual uh, comparisons. We're talking about the created order. And I think all of us get this at some level intuitively, but we just don't take it out and examine it intuitively. So <clears throat> if, uh, if, you're, if, I'm, if you're a man or you know a man who's walking down the street with his wife and somebody walks up to them and puts a gun out, points it at him and says, give me all your money. I mean, what would you expect the man to do? Anything right or wrong about what he might do next? Yeah, there you go, you know. I mean, okay. You know, well, hey, look, aren't we 50-50 in marriage? Is it your turn or my turn? You know, which one is it? You know, I mean, just, you wouldn't do it. I mean, if a, man, if, if a man ran away and left his wife there, that'd be a shame hard to overcome, right? Why? Because God built it in us to be protective. And we get that. Okay, well, that's a man and his wife. What, what, if, uh, what if two men are walking down the road? And they see a guy across the street start beating on a woman. Not my wife. Right? Not my home. You would still, wouldn't you, expect the man, the man to go do something? You know, to engage. Why? Because God just built us that way. And one of the distinguishing characteristics of men is strength. Peter talks about the wives being the weaker vessel. We can debate exactly what he means in that, but you can see certainly that he's contrasting wife to husband, and he uses language of weakness, which means men have by nature some kind of strength. There's a, there's a characteristic of life that is equated to strength that God has bred, built into men. And then what about women? Well, have a, a quiet and... Uh, Gentle spirit, which is beautiful, which is, which is attractive. Beauty is a characteristic God's built into women. And so the, the distinctions that he's made in the world between men and women are by design. And they're not to be ignored and they're not to be regarded as somehow uh, being oppressive, either as the recipient of oppression or the giver of oppression. It's different. We're different. We ought not try to measure women by men or men by women. And when we do this, it's just, I mean, the world gets turned upside down. So that's why, you know, the, the standards in the military have been challenged because we have so few women in the upper echelons of military forces. You know, there's, I know. I mean, that's it. Why don't we have any women Navy SEALs? Well, it's because of misogyny, right? 
No, it's because men know how to break things and blow things up better than women do. God just <laughs> made men that way. And, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's happening. All, the sport, anyway, it, it, you can just see how this permeates through society. And what, what is going on whenever we put women on the front lines of the battle, whenever we lower our standards in the military so that women can be elite fighting forces just like men. A lot of things are going on, but fundamentally, I would argue it's rebellion against the God who created us. It's a failure to appreciate how God has made men differently than he's made women, and the fact that men are designed better to do certain things that God's put in our purview, women are designed to do things better He's put in their purview, doesn't mean one's less and one's greater than the other. And we've lost that. We've lost that. I mean, even some good people want to talk to me about their narrow complementarians. Is that also thin complementarians? Yeah, thin. Yeah. Thin. That's right. It would be that I'm a complementarian in the home and in the church. But beyond that, fine. And I've used this very illustration with, with some folks like that. So you're telling me that if you're walking down the street with your wife, oh no, I protect my wife, okay. What if you're walking down the street and you see a woman being attacked that's not your wife? She's not a member of your church. No longer church, no longer home. Are you going to do anything about it? Well, yeah. Why? You misogynist, you, you know. Well, you think she can't handle herself? No, I mean, it's just, it's, again, intuitively, I think we still have enough in us and this culture has not completely ripped it out from us to recognize that this is right. But with the onslaught of being told how we ought to think about these things, I mean, you know, some guys, you may have found yourself in this position, you hesitate to open the door for women sometimes. Something as little as that. I can get away with it because I'm old. But, you know, some women resent it. You know, well, you think I can't, I'm not strong enough to open the door? You know, I mean, this... Uh, this type of, of dissolvent is working to erode the fabric of how we have thought about men and women relationships. <clears throat> it goes on to talk about marriage and the church. In the church, it's qualified men. You know, sometimes people think, well, how come men get to be pastors and women can't? Well, not all men get to be pastors. It's qualified men. God's the one who sets the standard on this. Um, that last line is very important. We further affirm that the image of God is expressed most fully and beautifully in human society when men and women walk in obedience to their God-ordained roles and serve according to their God-given gifts. In other words, when women get to live like women and men get to live like men. And there's no misogyny, there's no uh, man-hating involved in that. And it doesn't mean that you won't have some individual men that have very good aesthetic gifts and understand and, and see beauty in wonderful ways better than some women. It doesn't mean that you won't have uh, some women that are not faster, stronger, and uh, more capable to do things that are normally assumed to be man's uh, work or man's purview than some men. It's not meaning that at all. It's just saying that if a woman is going to engage in what is normally uh, a uh, regarded as, or I don't want to say regarded. If a woman, if, if a woman, let me take sports as an illustration. I coached girls basketball for 17 years, high school girls basketball, and had a lot of fun doing it. Had a 
lot of cramps doing it too. Uh, just the dealing with, with all those, that many young ladies at one time. Uh, though I am the father of five daughters, so uh, I was well prepared for it. That's how I got into it. But there, there's a way to play basketball like a man. You know, you, I mean, you go down there and you box somebody out, you box them out, you know. And if uh, they get too physical with you, you get physical with them right back. Well, there's a different way for women to play basketball. And I don't mean that you, you sit back and, you know, take turns shooting and all that. No, you can be competitive <laughs> as a woman. Uh, one of the first games I coached, we were getting beat 30-something to nothing at halftime. And, uh, yeah, so the, the, the halftime speech consisted of it's not a sin to foul. It's not a sin to foul. You may foul. Yeah, you have permission to foul. But, but there's a way to do things as women versus men, even when you're doing the same things. And so a woman should never try to measure herself by a man or think that she's got to do it in a manly way. And certainly a man can do things like cook or, or what might be something that God's built into women, care for children, nurture, and do it very well. But he ought to do it in a manly way. He shouldn't do it trying to measure himself or emulate what the specific goals and, and uh, provisions that God's given to women for. Does that make sense? I know it can be, I'm kind of nebulous on the edges of this, but in the main, this is a really important matter. Um, all right, the denial is, we deny that God ordained differences in men and women's roles, disparage the inherent spiritual worth or value of any of one over the other, nor do these differences in any way inhibit either men or women from flourishing for the glory of God. Broad complementarianism. That's what we're arguing for there. All right, any questions or comments? We take our breaks on the half hour now, is that right? Okay, let's take a break. <coughs> Thank you for listening to the weekly discourse. If you have been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org.